Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for worship. We thank you for the opportunity to come together and seek you, God. And I pray that that promise would be fulfilled, that when we seek you, we would find you today. Lord, that this wouldn't just be um, my words or my message, but this would be your message to your people, God, and you would speak to each and every one of us, Lord, and, and just really help us to, to identify with the text and understand what you're, uh, what you're calling us to, what you're encouraging us in, and Lord, that your word would um, truly be living and powerful in our lives. God, so I pray that your spirit would fill each and every one of us, that you would move in power, Lord, we'd be inspired um, by uh, this message that you had for your disciples so long ago. In Jesus' name, amen. So I'm going to ask you to recall, ask you to remember when you first came to the Lord. Okay, Maybe some of you in this room got saved at five years old. You've been a part of the church uh, your whole life. And maybe it's going to be hard for you to recall that moment or remember that time. Now, I know there's others that maybe gave their life to the Lord recently, or they gave their life to the Lord several years ago, and they were in a deep, dark spot, and God showed up. See, each and every one of us, regardless of when we accepted the Lord, we were in a place of need. We were in a place of desperation. We were in a place of hopelessness, and God, He met us right where we were at, and He provided everything that we need, and more than what we need. He gave us the promise of heaven and the promise of faithfulness and so many different things. And when we first receive that, we come to this place of just absolute gratitude, thankfulness. God, you are so good for the grace that you bestowed on my life, the grace that I know I don't deserve. And then time goes by. And maybe you've been walking with the Lord a little bit longer and you tend to forget the grace. And sometimes we can uh, not really be so grateful, so thankful, and we can start to look at other people and say, hey, God had more grace on them. God's blessing them more abundantly and we can literally become distracted by the blessings that God's bestowed on other people. We can assume that, man, they got a better deal than I did. But the truth of the matter is, we all got a good deal, which is the title of this teaching, We All Got a Good Deal. When we look at the grace that God has given each of us, the reward of eternal life, and that reward alone, regardless of the other blessings, that's a great deal. That's a deal that we absolutely didn't deserve. Now, Jesus is going to address that in other words. Basically, he's trying to help the disciples and help us understand how we're supposed to respond to grace, how we respond to the grace that's been bestowed on us. If you remember few weeks ago in Matthew chapter 19, the last teaching was with the rich young ruler. And Jesus has this encounter with this rich young ruler. And the rich young ruler says, in other words, what do I have to do to enter eternal life? And Jesus, he tells him, keep the commandments. And specifically, he lists the commandments that pertain to men. Why? Because he's leading them somewhere. This guy says, I've kept all of those. I've kept the, the commandments that pertain to my relationship with men my whole life. And then Jesus addresses the commandments about God. Why? Because this rich young ruler was worshiping a different God, another God other than Yahweh. He was worshiping materialism. He was worshiping money. His wealth was his identity. So Jesus says, if you want 
to be perfect, sell all your goods to the poor and follow me. And the young man wasn't willing to lay down his idol and materialism and money, so he walked away sorrowfully. Now, the disciples are watching this happen. They're listening. And then Peter says, wait a minute. Hey, we've forsaken all. What are we going to gain because we've, did what you, we've done what you've asked us to do? And Jesus says, don't worry about what you've sacrificed, what you've forsaken. In the kingdom, you're going to receive a hundredfold of everything that you've left behind, of everything that you've sacrificed in your life to follow me. The disciples were very concerned with the rewards they were going to gain for following Jesus. If you look in Matthew chapter 19, verse 30, he ends with this. But many who are first will be last and the last first. He's trying to change their perspective about uh, about the reward system. And if I do this, I get this. If I don't do this, then I don't get this. He's trying to, he's trying to teach them about grace. So he's going to go into this story in Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 to 16, to hammer home what God's grace looks like and again, how we ought to respond to his grace. If you look at Matthew chapter 20, we're going to read the whole story this time because I think it's uh, important for this one. Matthew chapter 20. Verse 1, it says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went again. He went about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those who came were hired about the eleventh hour, they received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour. And you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the last will be first and the first last. For many are called, but few chosen. Okay, that's really the theme that 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 verse 16, the same, very similar to verse 30. And he says it in other words, also in that text. But Jesus, he's trying to make the point about, again, grace and how we ought to respond to it. As we dive into the text and break it down, we'll understand this a little deeper and the symbolism that the Lord is using. Look back at Matthew chapter 20, verse 1 again. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning 
and hired laborers for his vineyard. Okay, the kingdom of heaven. He's describing the kingdom of heaven. This isn't just like a typical landowner and laborers and a vineyard. In fact, the landowner is a picture of God. Okay, landowner is a picture of God. The laborers are pictures of the disciples and not just the twelve. Anyone and everyone that has chosen to follow the Lord. Okay, the laborers. That's really any believer answering that call to be the disciple. And then he says, he said to hire laborers for his vineyard. The vineyard is a representation of the harvesting of souls. Okay, those that are unsaved. The God, the Father, he's sending the laborers in the vineyard to harvest souls that people might get saved. It's the Great Commission. Go and preach the gospel and make disciples. And you'll understand that a little better as we dive in. But there's also a lot of other connections. Look at verse 2. Now, when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Okay, we have to look at this. You got these laborers. They're waiting. They're day workers. They're sitting around literally waiting for something to happen. Okay, they're waiting for some miracle. They're not out like like uh, filling out job applications. Okay, it's like as if they were standing on the side of their own. They're waiting for someone to pick them up to give them a job. Why? Because they're desperate. They don't have a job. They're in desperation. They're in need. And this landowner is going to come out of wherever to provide for them in their need. This is a picture of how God provides for us in our need. Point number one, God blesses us in our need. God blesses us in our need. No, I'm not talking about just blessings in general. I'm specifically talking about the moment that you might have been in that place of desperation, that you might have been in that place of hopelessness, that you are literally waiting for a miracle to happen. I remember back when I was uh, full blown in my addiction and and I would like have these seasons where time was good. In my mind, what good was was being sober. I didn't realize how good it was to be with God at that point. But my parents would ask me, I'd hit rock bottom again. They'd say, what are you going to do next? And I'd literally say, I'm waiting for a miracle. I'm just waiting for a miracle. Literally, I don't know what I'm going to do next. Everything I've tried hasn't worked. I'm waiting for a miracle. The laborers, they're just waiting for a miracle. They're waiting for something other than themselves to intervene in their life, to give them hope, to give them purpose, to give them literally the means to provide for themselves and their family. See, this is what God does with each and every one of us. When we're in that place of desperation, when we're in that place of hopelessness, when we're first, but you know, right before that, before we encounter the Lord, God, we, we need help. We want you to come in our landowner. We need you to help us, to give us life, to give us purpose. And he does. He shows up and he blesses us. us. I think it's uh, beautiful how Ezekiel describes the heart of what I'm communicating in Ezekiel chapter 16. Specifically, he's speaking to the children of Israel. But it connects to each and every one of us that have accepted the Lord in our lives. Look at this. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 4. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut, nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do any of these things for you, to have compassion on you. But you were thrown out into the open field when you yourself were loathed on the day you were born. This is a picture of us in the world. The world just threw us out. 
The world hung us out to dry. The world maybe took advantage of us and the world certainly didn't take care of us. But look at verse 6. And when I passed by you and saw you struggling in your own blood, I said to you in your blood, live. Yes, I said to you in your blood, live. I made you thrive like a plant in the field and you grew, matured, and became very beautiful. See, the Lord, he saw us in that place of desperation. He saw us in that need. He saw us when nobody wanted us. Maybe no one wanted anything to do with us. And he said, I want you. You're desperate. You're in need. And I want you. And I'm going to give you life. In fact, I'm going to tell you to live. I'm going to give you purpose. I'm going to give you hope. I'm going to let you understand the meaning why you're here. What I've created you for. The Lord, that's what he does with each of us. We come to him in desperation and need, waiting for a miracle, and it happens. He shows up and he says, here, this is what you're doing wasn't, isn't what you were created to do. I, I'll tell you what your life is supposed to be about. I got work for you to do. I got, I got serious work for you to do. And that's exactly what the landowner does with the laborers that are waiting for work. He takes them, he finds them, and he puts them to work. Now they're able to have life, they're able to have purpose, they're able to have a a means to provide for themselves and their family. In the midst of hopelessness, the landowner gave them hope. That's what God does with each and every one of us. If you look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 3, And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. So we see the land owner, he's accumulating laborers. It wasn't enough for him to just get the first batch. He's in desperate need. Why? Well, in that culture, you basically had two rainy seasons in Israel and you had only a short period of time to harvest the crops, vineyard, grapes, whatever the crop may be. So you had this short period of time because you had to harvest all the crops before the next rainy season because the rain would destroy a lot of the crops. So he needs as many laborers as he can get, as he can find, because time is short and the work has to be done in a short period of time. It's a picture of us in the world as disciples harvesting souls. What do I mean? The end's coming. Time is short. <laughs> we gotta, we gotta try to seek and save as many people as possible before what? Before the end comes, before that rainy season. There's gonna be a brutal rainy season before the tribulation comes. See, time is short and the Lord needs to find as many laborers as He can to get out there in the harvest and seek and save souls. And He says to them in verse 4, whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. He didn't agree to, okay, it's gonna be a denarius, whatever. We see that that's what He pays them later, but we see the landowner says, I'm gonna give you what's right. Why? Because God is just. God always gives what is right. We don't deserve more than he gives. And we got to consider what we actually deserve. We deserve hell and death. And he doesn't give us that. He gives us more. He gives us grace. He gives us life. He gives us purpose. But sometimes we feel like we deserve more than we actually gain from God. And we'll discuss that in a moment. That's when entitlement and all these things can seep through. But the point is, God, he's a just God. He deals with each of us fairly. Matthew chapter 20, verse 5. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour. 
Okay, so he goes out at 6 a.m. Uh, the third hour would be 9 a.m. The sixth hour would be 12 p.m. Okay, and ninth hour, 3 p.m. Uh, and he's going to go out the 11th hour. Look at verse 6. And about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing idle. And he said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you also go into the vineyard and whatever is right, you will receive. So we see these men, they're just sitting around other men waiting for something to happen. And they're, and they're idle. They're not pursuing something. They're waiting for something. Something much like the men that we encountered earlier that were there at 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. But these guys have been waiting around literally all day for something to happen. And then they have an excuse. They say, no one hired us. It's whoever's supposed to hire us. It's their fault. It's not my fault. See, Each and every one of us can have a million excuses for why we can be idle, but none of them are good. No excuse is good. Why? Because there's always work to be done. Point number two is just that there's always work to be done. Considering the kingdom of God, there's there's always work to be done. And I'm not talking about, oh, we shouldn't rest and we shouldn't have time for, you know, things that we enjoy and stuff. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the point that Jesus is making is, hey, there's no reason why you're standing around idle all day. There's stuff that I have for you that you could be doing. See, God, that's what he does. He purposes to find those idle hands. He purposes to find those idle minds and he wants to put them to work. Why? Because time is short again in the harvesting of souls. It's got to happen and, and, and it's going to there's only an opportunity for it to happen now. But there's going to come a time where there's no more opportunity. Jesus says it like this in Matthew chapter nine. If you flip back a couple pages, a few pages, Matthew chapter nine, speaking to the disciples again in verse thirty seven. He says, then he said to his disciples, the harvest truly is plentiful, but the laborers are few. The harvest is plentiful. It will always be plentiful. There's, there's no shortage of unsaved souls. There's never going to be a shortage. There's always going to be a surplus. There's always going to be an abundance. He says, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. That's why he's seeking all these laborers. He wants to accumulate as many laborers as he can to put them to work. Literally, to put them in the work of increasing the kingdom of God. I'm not just talking about, you know, your, your, your five day a week, six day a week work week. I'm talking about the work of the Lord. See, the Lord, he's prepared good works for each and every one of us that we would walk in them. But we have to choose whether or not we walk in them. And if we have this mentality like these men did, that we're just idle, hey, there's no work to be done. My excuse is, no one hired me. My excuse is, I didn't know what to do. Whatever the excuse is, no excuse is good. The Lord calls us to have a mind to work. In fact, in Nehemiah chapter 4, verse 6, you can just write it down. In Nehemiah 4, 6, when Nehemiah is going back to build the wall after Babylon had destroyed Jerusalem, he, 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 he gathers these people together. He's like, this is the work that needs to be done. And the people weren't like, eh, I don't feel like it. No, no, no. The people, it said, they had a mind to work. They were ready. All right, I want to build up the kingdom of God. Now, that was the practical kingdom of God, but it speaks also of the spiritual kingdom of God. God wants us to have that mind to work that we'd always be looking for opportunities to increase the kingdom. It could be a conversation. It could be praying for someone. 
It could be just being there for someone. It could be so many different things, reaching out to someone that you know is struggling. Whatever it is, picking up the phone when, when you're tired and you don't want to, but that person needs you in that moment. It could really be anything, but he wants us to have that mind to work, that we would take initiative, that we wouldn't just wait for something to happen. We would make something happen. That's why he's saying this to these men that are idle. What are you waiting for? What are you standing around for? There's work to be done. I got work for you, the harvest. I got plenty of work to you for, for you to do the rest of your lives. But the men, they were idle. They were standing around. And we have to remember with God, God doesn't put us to work for his benefit. He puts us to work for our benefit. What do I mean? The Lord puts us to work. He gives us purpose. He gives us life. He gives us spiritual and godly things to do so that we might benefit. Why? You heard the saying, idle hands are what? The devil's playground. That's not biblical, but there's truth to it. There is truth to it. When we're idle, when we're not doing anything, when we're not engaged, when we're not doing the work of the Lord, there's a tendency for the enemy to come and Whisper a little, hey, you can, you can just do this. You don't have anything to do. Just do this. Just do that. Engage in this specific sin. See, idle hands lead to idle minds. And idle minds lead to idolatrous actions. When we're not worshiping God with our whole lives, heart, soul, strength, all of it, doing everything unto the Lord. When we're not worshiping God with our lives, we're worshiping something else. It's the truth. Everything we do in our lives is... An act of worship. So if we're not using even our minds to engage in the Lord and meditate on what's true and noble and praiseworthy and all these different things, then we're thinking about something else and we're thinking about something we shouldn't be thinking about. And I'm not talking about, no, you can't have fun. You can't watch a movie. You can't do all the, that's not what I'm talking about. What I am talking about when we're not spiritually on guard, when we're not engaging spiritually, when we're not trying at least to do the things that God's calling us to do, those idle minds, invitation to the enemy. We're just asking the enemy, hey, I'm not doing what God's called me to do, so what do you want me to do? That's really what we're doing by putting ourselves in that situation. And the enemy will try to get us every single time. Why? Because idle minds lead to carnal minds. And carnal minds lead to death. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 6. He says just that. For to be carnally minded is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. When we have the idle minds, the idle hands, it, 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 it turns into, yes, carnal mindedness, which leads to sin, which ultimately leads to death. And I'm not just talking about physical death. It could be the death of, of a relationship. It could be the death of some spiritual discipline. It could be the death of some spiritual thing in general. It could be a lot of things. But when we have idle minds, when we're just sitting around waiting for something to happen and not engaging in the work of the Lord, whether it's with our hands or our hearts or our minds, we're, we're asking, in other words, the enemy to, hey, we're an open book. Hey, come on in. Do whatever you want. I'm not doing God's work. What work do you have to do for me? Not that we would ever say that, but that's what he'll use against us to try to lead us to that place of death. So these men sitting around idle, got nothing going on. So landowner again, he says, why are you idle? I got work for you to do. And he sends them into the vineyard. Look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 8. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, 
Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. But they likewise received a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you made them equal to us, who have, a, who have borne the burden and the heat of the day. So at the end of the day, what we see is the people that came last, meaning the people that came... So let me explain a couple of things. Workday, 6 to 6, okay? 12-hour days, right? 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. So there was guys that came at 5 p.m., worked an hour, and he gives them a denarius. Not only does he give them a denarius, which is a fair day's wage for anyone, he gives it to them first. So he calls the people that have only been there for an hour, and he says, here you go. Here's your payment for the day. So what starts being produced in the people that have been there since 6 o'clock? Well, if he's giving the guy that worked for an hour a denarius, he might give me 12. He's going to probably give me more than what they gave that guy because I've been working my tail off all day long. But that's not what happens. No, he gives them each a denarius. That's what he agreed to. That's what was fair. And yes, he blessed these uh, later workers more than the original early workers. But that's the reality of God's grace. He has compassion on whom he has compassion. He has grace on whom he has grace. And I'll get into that in a moment, but we can't look at the grace that he has on other people and, and covet it. See, these men, these laborers that have been there the majority of the day because the landowner blessed these late workers the same that they blessed him, they complained. They complained. Why? It says they supposed that they should have received more. Literally. The laborers were discontent with what they had and they believed that they deserved more than they had. We see discontentment and entitlement in these laborers. Point number three, be content, not entitled. Be content, not entitled. Sometimes as believers, we believe we deserve more than we do. And sometimes we can look at the rewards that other people receive and we can grow envious of them. Okay, yeah, God, I know like my life was a mess and like you saved me and you gave me life and you gave me purpose, but, but you didn't give me what they had. You didn't give me the life that they had and they, they have like so much. You bless them so much and oh my gosh, like why can't you bless me like you've blessed them. I've been serving you for 12 hours and they only served you for one and you're blessing them more than you blessed me. But that can be the mentality. And the Lord warns us of this so many times in so many different ways. We see a great illustration of this in John chapter 21. In John chapter 21, give you some context. This is after the resurrection. Jesus finds his disciples uh, not doing what they were supposed to. They're out fishing again. And he has this encounter with Peter. And Peter, the last time he saw Jesus, he was denying him. Okay. He denied him three times, but Jesus still had grace on Peter. Peter is just encountered in this text, in this chapter. Peter just received grace after he denied the Lord. Then right after he receives grace, look what he says. In John chapter 21, verse 21, Peter, seeing him, saw John, 
Let me, let me read you verse 20 real quick so you understand a little more context. Then Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, that was John, who also had leaned on his breast at the, breast at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, but Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter just received grace. Remember what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 10. If you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father in heaven. Peter denied Jesus before men and Jesus still had grace on Peter. He still had grace on him and he bestows that grace and he makes it clear. No, Peter, I still love you. I'm still going to have grace on you. And right after he receives the grace, what's John getting? What's John going to get? Yeah, I know I, I deserve all these things, but, but what's John going to get? Just don't worry about John. Don't worry about the blessings and rewards that other people have received. Look at how blessed you are. Peter, look at what you deserve and look at how blessed you are. doesn't matter what John gets. We can all fall into this. We can be distracted by the blessings of others. We can assume that we got the short end of the stick, that we didn't get a good deal. But we always have to look at the deal in light of what we deserve. Look at it from the beginning. We deserve nothing. We were waiting around for a miracle. We were in need and we were in desperation. And God chose to bestow grace on each and every one of us. There's also... Another thing that Jesus is trying to get across to the disciples, beginning with the last to the first, okay, so the people that came last, the five o'clockers and the three o'clockers and the twelve o'clockers and the nine o'clockers, then the six o'clockers, and in that order, he blessed the last first and the first last. Here's the truth. Who's he speaking to? The disciples. The disciples have been following him from, from the get-go, okay, some later, some earlier, regardless of the timeline. They've been following him from the get-go. There's going to be people... <laughs> decades, centuries, thousands of years after the disciples that are still going to get the same reward that the disciples get. See, he's trying to get across. It's not about all these rewards. It's about the reward. It's about the fact that you had nothing and I gave you life. I gave you abundant life. I gave you heaven. There's going to be many that come after you that denied me their whole life and later on got saved that enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus, he's not speaking about the, the treasures in heaven, okay? Don't confuse this, because there are, there is a truth Jesus talks about that will be rewarded based on what we do on this earth. There's crowns, there's other blessings that God talks about. He's talking about the main reward. He's talking about heaven in this text. That's what he's trying to get across. And it's like this. Whether you accepted Jesus at five... Or at 95 on your deathbed, guess what? You get the same reward. You both get heaven, okay? That's what, we, that's what he's getting at. Think about it. When you get to heaven, maybe there was something, someone in your past that, dude, they were the worst. Like they were, they bullied you, or maybe they beat you up, or maybe they ripped you off, or whatever. They, you got conned, you got scammed, whatever it is. And you're like, man, I better not see that person in heaven. And you get to heaven and they're there. What do you think you're going to do? You're not going to be like, God, why? Why did you let them come to heaven? No. You're going to be like, wow, I don't deserve this. I know he doesn't either. Thank God that you gave any of us a reward. There's a, a Tom reminded me of this uh, between services. But, but there's a story about Ted Bundy accepting Christ before he was put to death. 
Like, that's crazy. And none of us hear that and are like, yeah, praise God for your grace. Most of us are like, dang, really? Ted Bundy? But that's the truth. That's our nature. Like, wait a minute. Wait, wait. He doesn't deserve it. But we don't either. None of us deserve the reward, but that's what God's grace is all about. That's how it's defined. It's unmerited, undeserving favor from God. That's the point. None of us deserve it. The laborers that were sitting on the side of the road, they didn't deserve it either. But he gave them a denarius. He gave them grace. So when you get to heaven, don't go complaining about the people that are up there. There'll probably be more people than we realize. We'll be like, man, really? That guy? And they're like, yeah, look at you, that guy too. <laughs> Matthew chapter 20, verse 13. But he answered one of them and said, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? The Lord's like, I'm not doing you any wrong. I gave you what's fair. I gave you a day's wage. So why are you complaining? He goes on in Matthew chapter 20, verse 14. Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? Landowner saying, hey, I can do with my grace what I want to do with my grace. God can do with his resources what he wants to do. And then he says, is your, is your eye evil because I am good? When he's talking about the evil eye, he's specifically speaking of jealousy. In other words, it would be like this. Are you jealous because of my goodness to other people? Is my goodness to others producing jealousy in you? Is my goodness to others producing envy in you? It's a question we can all ask ourselves. Do we see God's goodness in light of how much better he is to other people or how good he's been to us already? See, we can't measure God's goodness by how much better he blesses other people. There's always going to be somebody that seems more blessed. It's all perspective, okay? We can't measure God's goodness and, and how blessed others appear to be. We always have to see God's goodness in light of what we deserve. Not what we think we deserve, what we actually deserve. And though we deserve nothing, he's given us so much. He's given us grace. We get heaven. None of us deserve that yet because he's good. He grants that to those that accept the Lord in their life. Matthew chapter 20, verse 16 says, So the last will be first, and the first last, for many are called, but few chosen. Okay, When he's speaking about calling and being chosen, he's, he's specifically, he says that other times, but he's specifically talking about grace. God calls people according to grace. He chooses people according to grace. Now his disciples, who he's talking to, were both called and chosen. You have been called and chosen, not because you're like great fishermen, or Matthew, that you're a good tax collector, or you guys are some like spiritual giants. I don't know. God chooses the foolish, the weak, right? God didn't choose the disciples for what they brought to the table. He chose them because he loved them. He chose them according to his grace, and he didn't just choose them. He called them, and part of this calling is recognizing the last will be first and the first last. 
Now he's starting to describe what this calling actually looks like as they grow to understand it. Because we have to remember, they were always concerned about who's going to be the first, right? They argue about that. We're going to talk about it next week. They're always arguing about who's going to be the first, who's going to get the greatest reward. All these different things. And the Lord tries to hammer home this humility and the reality that he's called them to this lifestyle. He's called them to forsake all. This calling is going to cost them something and they have a choice as to whether or not they endure this calling. Point number four, endure the calling and recognize the cost. Endure the calling and recognize the cost. Though the disciples had sacrificed much, though they had lost much, Jesus still had to hammer home the point that just because you've sacrificed these things, just because you lost all these things, you can't serve me, you can't pursue me, you can't worship me in light of what you think you're going to gain, in light of what reward you think you're going to deserve. Our relationship with God, it can't be reward-based. It can't be, uh, I pursue God because this is what I, I think I'm going to get from him. God is a giving God and he gives us so much, but that can't be our motivation and why we pursue him. We should pursue God. Why? Because he's called us to. Because that's what we were created for. Our motivation can't be our reward. Our motivation simply has to be our calling. That we've been called to this. We've been called to serve the living God. So what's your motivations behind everything that you do? Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's serving the Lord. That's specifically what he's talking about. But in general, on how you live your life. What's your work ethic based on? Is it based on what you think you're going to gain? Do you only work hard when you think you're going to receive more? Okay. Or do you work less when you don't think you're going to receive anything? Do you still work hard even though you know you're going to be last? That's what the Lord's trying to get across. Regardless of the reward, this is what I've called you to endure this calling and recognize there's going to be seasons of gain and seasons of loss. But when you have those seasons of loss, are you going to stop living like you were when you had seasons of gain? Will your motivation completely be compelled by the rewards and the seasons of blessedness and the seasons where you've lost a lot of things? Or will your motivation be compelled by the love of Christ? That's what it's supposed to be for each and every one of us. That's what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. He says, for the love of Christ compels us. It's the fact that he loved us so much and he's called us. Because he loved us, he called us to be his laborers in the vineyard. That and that alone is enough to motivate us to to, to work hard, to, to do everything as unto the Lord, to worship God with our lives. And during the calling, Paul, he gives a pretty creative illustration about this there's several other things that uh, he means by this but just follow along with me in second timothy chapter two he's speaking about the the call of discipleship in general remember he's speaking to this young pastor okay let me let me read verse one and two Uh, i'll read to verse four actually to verse six so you have context you therefore my sons 
be my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He says, be strong in the grace. This is what grace is supposed to produce in us. Look at verse two. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Grace is to lead us to be zealous for good works, to invest the things that God has invested to us, that we would invest those things in to others. Be strong in the grace. Look at verse three. And he gives an illustration. You, therefore, must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Okay. No one entangled in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. He's specifically speaking about being strong in God's grace. And part of being strong in God's grace is enduring the calling. And he gives us three examples. He talks about a soldier. He talks about an athlete. And he talks about a farmer. And I just want to, 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 to break these down a little bit and, and give maybe a different perspective. Think about a soldier. A soldier is called to endure hardship. That's what they've been trained for. They go through boot camp. They go through all this different training. Why? So that they can endure through hardship, that they can endure through difficult situations. Why? Not for what they can gain, because that's what they've been called to do. They're called a soldier. Think about this. Does a soldier stop being a soldier if he loses a battle? No. If a soldier, their objective, right, is to endure the calling and hopefully win the battle. But if they lose, are they no longer a soldier? No, they're called to be a soldier and they have the opportunity to endure that calling, whether they lose a battle or whether they gain in the battle or win the battle, enduring the calling despite the cost, even when they lose something. See, a soldier, he's called to endure to the point of death. And that's what soldiers do. They endure that calling and being a soldier until the point that they die. Win some battles, lose some battles. But because they're called to be a soldier, they endure the calling. The Lord has called us to be disciples. We're called to endure that calling regardless of seasons of blessedness and seasons of of loss, seasons when we win and seasons when we lose. Just because we lost it doesn't mean that we're no longer disciples. He's called us to be disciples through every season. Then he uses the example of the athlete. Athletes train to what? They train to win, right? So he says, train to, they strive to win this crown. They're working, they're training, they're doing all these things to win. When they lose, does that make them not an athlete anymore? Just because they lost, are they still an athlete? Yeah, only one can win. A lot of people lose. Think about that. Maybe you were an athlete before. If you, the first time you lost, because I don't know anyone in this room that has won everything, okay? Maybe Adam, I don't know. (laughs) but in all sincerity though they're called to be an athlete they train they endure the calling whether they win or whether they lose they don't stop being called an athlete until they what until they stop enduring the call right and that would look like retirement or something right i'm not going to be an athlete anymore so now they're not enduring it's the same thing for us whether we win or lose we're still called to endure this calling as a disciple then you got the farmer right when a farmer has a bad harvest does he quit being a farmer 
Does he say, okay, bad harvest, we lost a lot of crops, I quit, I'm done. No, if he does that, he's going to die, right? It's not happening. He's enduring the calling of a farmer. Why? Because that's who he is. That's that's his occupation. That's his position. He's a farmer and he must endure the calling of a farmer, whether he has a good season, a good harvest, or he has a bad harvest. That's the point. The Lord, he's called us to be disciples. There's going to be times when there's great gain. There's going to be time where there's great loss. But we have to recognize, regardless of the reward, regardless of the seasons of plenty and seasons of of next to nothing, we don't endure the calling based on whether we win or lose, whether there's great gain or great loss. No, we endure the calling because we're called. We're called to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We're called to be followers of Jesus Christ. And what he's getting at here, yeah, there's going to be times. I know you guys want to be first, but you're going to be last. And even though you were following me from the beginning, you're getting the reward that everybody else got. Knowing that, will you stop working? Will you stop following me? Are you following me just for the rewards, just for the benefits? Or are you following me because you are called to do that? Because that's where the satisfaction comes. Yes, there's encouragement and blessings. Yes, when God blesses us, there's like, oh, wow, yeah, I know God loves me, all those different things. But that can't be the foundation and why we make the decisions that we make. Whether there's blessing or whether there's not, it's simply because this is what we've been created for. This is what we've been called to, to be followers of Jesus Christ, to worship God. Now, Jesus is trying to get this this message across to the disciples. He doesn't want to have them, have them uh, develop this works-based faith. He wants them to be compelled by love, not motivated by what they're going to re- get rewarded with. He, he wants them to have sincere hearts and why they're following him, why they're pursuing him, why they're worshiping him. Basically, in other words, asking them, will you give it your all even if you don't get a reward? Will you still give it your all? Even if you get nothing, will you still give it your all just because I've called you to give it your all? Now, I wonder, I wish, I wish Jesus talked about this later, but I wonder what happened in those laborers the next day, okay? What was produced in these laborers the next day? Think about it. The late laborers, the one that came late. Think about the five o'clockers. The one that came at five o'clock, they got a day's wage for one hour. Are they going to show up the next day at five o'clock? Hey, I got grace then. I'm going to get grace now. Are they going to take advantage of the grace? Because we can do that, right? Well, God forgave me of all those sins. I can just keep sinning. I can just keep doing these things. He's going to have grace. What was produced in the late laborers? Did they allow God's grace to teach them your responsibility? God's going to have grace on me anyways. The landowner is going to have grace. I can be irresponsible all day long. I can be idle 11 hours of the day and work one hour. And I still get the same thing as Joe Schmo that works six day, six, or sorry, from six o'clock, 12 hours that day. What about the early workers? Did they say, well, this guy got the same reward as me for working one hour and I worked 12 hours Am I just going to be like them? Am I just going to wait until five o'clock and show up when they showed up last time? Will they too take advantage of grace? See, the Lord's heart is that we would respond to grace, much like Paul communicated in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. 
for I labored more abundantly than they all. Okay, He's not boasting. He's saying God's grace taught me to labor. God's grace, not that I'm earning it, but my response to it, because I know I don't deserve it, I'm laboring more abundantly than they all. What does God's grace produce in you? What does it produce in me? Does it produce a diligence? Does it produce a, a zeal for good works? Or are we like, whatever, I can live my life however I want to. You know, as long as I repent at the end, everything's good. And it's like, no, that's not what he's trying to get across. Recognize you lived your life a certain way. God had grace when you were in need, when you were desperate, when you were hopeless. And that grace is supposed to teach us to be diligent laborers in his vineyard. That's the Lord's heart in this message. He wants the disciples to chain their motivation, that they would check their motives and why they're doing what they're doing. No, I gave you guys grace. You were fishermen, you were tax collectors. You didn't really have purpose in life. I gave you purpose in life. How are you going to respond to that grace, to that purpose, to the blessing of not just eternal life, but life abundantly here and now? See, the laborers were concerned about the deal that everybody else got. Okay, the six o'clock guys that had nothing going on that day, okay, they, they got blessed just as much as the five o'clock guys. And they were worried about their deal. I got a bad deal. But when we look at our lives and the deal that we receive from the Lord, none of us, none of us deserve the reward that we've been given. We've all got a good deal. We choose how we respond to that deal. We choose how we respond to the grace. Do we allow it to produce idleness in us or do we allow it to produce diligence in us? What we do with the deal is up to us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you um, for this text and uh, this message, not just for the disciples, but, but for us, God. I pray that we would really understand how blessed we are. God, it's, it's so hard to even imagine um, how good we actually have it or, or how good we're going to have it when we enter into your kingdom. Lord, but I pray that you would just remind us of grace, that you would remind us of, of when we were desperate and in need and, and remind us that, that there's truth that we're still there in a sense, that we still are desperate, that we still are in need, and we certainly are in need of your grace, God. So I pray that you would bestow grace on each and every one of us, Lord, and we would allow that grace to, to teach us to be zealous for the things of you. Lord, that we would honor the deal that you made, God. And we would show up at 6 a.m. even though we know we could get the same thing at 5 p.m. We would become those, those 6 o'clock laborers because you've been so good to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.